Father, you are very good to us in that you speak to sinners who don't deserve to hear your voice, who don't deserve your mercy, who don't deserve your son, Jesus. In your grace and mercy, you've given us your son, and by your Holy Spirit today, you are guiding us by your word so that we might know Jesus better and live for him and follow him. So we pray now that you would help us to keep doing that as we look at your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here is an uh, image. I wonder if you recognize where it's from and what it's showing. It is, of course, George W. Bush, and it's the morning of the 11th of September, 2001. And an aide has just whispered to him the news that a second plane has hit the World Trade Center in New York. And Bush is in a reading class in a primary school, and apparently he's reading a book called The Pet Goat. Now, rightly or wrongly, he was later criticised for the slowness of his response. But that leads to a question. Who would want to be the leader of a major world power in a time of national crisis? Of course, many of us delight in taking the role of the armchair critic. We know what South Park's Captain Hindsight would say and do in any situation, uh, but to, to act decisively ahead of time and make time-critical decisions with only limited data that will affect millions of people, whether that is following a, an unprecedented terror attack or whether it's leading during a global pandemic, this is surely not for the faint-hearted. After all, for many of us, sometimes it's enough of a struggle to choose what to have for lunch, let alone to make critical decisions affecting millions of people. But even when we take all that into account, it is clearly true, some leaders are more effective than others, especially in a crisis. We've been seeing over the last few weeks that 1 Samuel is about leadership. What does effective leadership for God's people look like? What should God's people look for in their leaders? Next week we will arrive at the beginning of the central section of this book and its main theme, which is the choosing of a king for God's people, for Israel. But before we get there, we've actually fast-forwarded, if you've been paying attention, which I think you might have done if you've been here the last few weeks, we fast-forwarded over a few chapters, um, and uh, this, this chapter 7 is vital for us as we get clear on what effective leadership needs to look like before we head into chapter 8. That is why it's here. Over the last uh, few weeks, we've seen how God brought about the birth of a prophet of Samuel and how he would be central to God's purpose for the nation. And because of time, we can't look at every chapter, which is why we fast-forwarded in every single verse, so we, we, and we will be skipping over a few bits later on as well. We've, we've, we're going to have to skim over chapters 4 to 6. We'll tell you very quickly what happens. But in, in, in these chapters, we see an account of years of failure for God's people. So uh, in chapter 4, it starts with presumption. 
God's people should be trusting God, but instead they trust in the symbol for God's presence, which is the Ark of the Covenant. And so they say, we have the Ark, so God is on our side. Nothing can hurt us. So they take the Ark into battle to protect them, and the Philistines capture it. And this image on the screen is from um, a synagogue um, which uh, that, that was excavated, archaeological um, excavation, found this fresco in an ancient synagogue from before um, the birth of Jesus. Um, so it's just a sort of depiction of this event that happens in these chapters. But the issue for God's people is presumption and pride instead of humble trust. I've been to church all my life, so God is definitely on my side, somebody might say. That's what it might look like today. Well, along the way as they go along, Eli and his two wicked sons that we heard about over the last few weeks, well, they're killed. Uh, God's forecast judgment that he promised does come on them. But although the Philistines now have the ark, it's not as if all goes well for them. In, in chapter 5, the ark is taken into the temple of their god, Dagon. And there's this comic passage about their god, Dagon, who is a physical idol, because poor old Dagon keeps falling over and lying prostrate in front of the ark, as if he's paying homage to the ark of the covenant. And so they, the Philistines get up every day and they go in and, oh no, the God's fallen over again. And so they have to put him back on his stand. And then he falls over again. So what we're seeing is God may be disciplining his people who are being presumptuous and they, he's taken the ark from them. But he will also continue to humiliate and judge his enemies. His hand is heavy against them, we read in these chapters. So then, by ch that's chapter 5. Then ch by chapter 6, the Philistines have had enough. So we, don't, we don't want this ark in our territory anymore. So they put the ark on a cart and they tie it to a couple of cows and they send it back into Israelite territory. And the cows take it back and it says they were mooing all the way home as they pulled this ark back into Israel. And when it arrives, some Israelites in Beth Shemesh have a look inside the ark out of you know, curiosity and they're immediately killed. And this, this whole account has big echoes of the Exodus story. So think about it. Why is it like that? Well, you've got a pagan power. You've got the Philistines thinking they can make life miserable for God's people. And then the pagan power is ridiculed as Moses ridiculed the, the power of Pharaoh's magicians, if you remember. And the pagan power is struck with a plague before what belongs to God is brought out miraculously with the pagan power in the end delighted to see it go. See the parallels? And so by chapter 7, which we've got in front of us now, we're meant to be in awe of the power of God because this is a God whose enemies are never going to win, but a God who will also discipline his wayward people to ensure that they learn to trust him, to fear him, and, and uh, to revere him. And now the camera switches back to Samuel. We've not heard from Samuel since uh, we, we saw him last week at the end of chapter 3 and he was called a prophet. Then, then the camera's kind of gone away from him. Now we're back at Samuel. And we see something of this question about effective leadership. Both what an effective human leader can, 
offer to God's people, but also where an effective human leader might in the end still be limited. So this is a glimpse of effective leadership. And first of all, we see a call to repentance in verses 2 to 6, a call to repentance. Finally, God's people have woken up to the fact that they need to take God seriously. So they mourn, they seek the Lord, verse 2. And Samuel leads them by giving them a kind of gospel message. You see what he says? He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, what does he say it's going to mean? It's going to mean ridding yourselves of your foreign gods. As they suffered at the hands of the Philistines and their complacency with the ark has led to destruction, it seems that they'd begun to doubt that God was for them after all. And in turn, they turned to foreign gods like the Philistines worshipped. They're kind of thinking, well, these Philistines seem to be, you know, doing rather well in battle against us. Maybe we better worship what they worship instead of the true God that we know. Actually, it's striking, isn't it, how often tough times then and now cause us to turn from worshipping God with our whole hearts and, and, and instead we compromise and we seek comfort or security in things that aren't God at all. And it's so often in times of suffering, at the time when we need one another and we need God most of all, and actually that's the time when we are distanced from God and his people. And God ends up coming second to other more pressing concerns. Or else we find ourselves looking to the false gods that our friends and neighbours worship, as it were. They, you know, they wouldn't think of themselves as worshipping false gods, but that is what every human being is doing. And, and when we look at them and we think, yeah, actually, do you know what? Their love of money, what their attitude to relationships, actually that doesn't seem to work out so bad for them, really. They seem to be having quite a good life there. And look at me, maybe I'm a fool for going God's way. Maybe I can afford to worship their God a little bit as well. And so Samuel calls them back and he says, get rid of those gods. God is an all or nothing God. Serve him only and he will deliver you. And that is the gospel that they needed to hear. And it's the gospel that we still need to hear today in the face of chaos, in the face of COVID, whatever else is going on. Maybe life feels tough at the moment. I'd be very surprised if it didn't, to be honest. Samuel would say, today is a great day to return to the Lord, to say, do you know what? I, I, I know I'm so tempted to go along with the mass panic and anxiety of the world around me, but it's not going to get me anywhere. What I need most of all is to stick with God, to stick with his people, to stick with his word. When life is chaotic and crazy, there's even more reason to stay anchored to him and his word every day and his people week by week in living for him. Not just saying, well, you know, do you know what? Now is the time just to look after number one. But now, as with any time, is a time serve him. So that is what they do. They confess we have sinned against the Lord in response to Samuel, their leader. Verse 6. See, today is always a good day to start afresh with God. 
but the crisis gets worse before it gets better. That's what we see next, the Philistines attack. And so we come next to a cry for deliverance from verses 7 to 11, a cry for deliverance. The, the, the Israelites have got it now. But verse 8, we need to cry out to God. Don't stop doing that, Samuel. Please do that now. Please, would you just stick at that job as our prophet, as our representative, as our leader? Would you please just cry out to God to deliver us? Because we've realized that's what we need to do. And he does that, and the Lord answers him. Verse 10, there's a burnt offering, and the Philistines draw near to attack. And and look, last time the Philistines attacked, what happens? Well, last time they did that, 30,000 Israelites died when the Philistines attacked last time. Now the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. There's this huge slaughter. So one question then is, well, what's the difference then between what happens here and what happened back in chapter 4 when the Israelites suffered such a huge defeat at the hands of the Philistines? Well, the difference is... Humility and crying out to God now versus pride and complacency then. You see, back then they thought, oh, we've, we've got the ark. We'll be fine. You know, God's on our side. No problem. We'll just take the ark into battle and we'll just watch them fall around us. Now they realize, don't, take, don't be presumptuous. Cry out to God. Later, the, the prophets would warn Israel again in a similar way. They, they, they would say, Jeremiah would say, do not trust in deceptive words, saying this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, don't just say we've got the temple and nothing bad can happen to us. No, this is a completely different attitude now. As Israel and Samuel finally realize there is no salvation until you depend utterly on God and no one and nothing else. thing to understand of course is that clearly this is not a guaranteed cast iron route to getting the outcome you desire in life if you start with the outcome that you want and you say what do i have to do to get god to give me what i want in whatever situation you're in well actually no that's that's like the israelites back in chapter four taking the ark with them as a talisman you know if i've got this with me if i press these buttons if i do these in a certain way if i say these words if i live this way God will be on my side. God will give me what I want. God will rescue me. Everything will be fine. Now, that's a chapter four attitude. No, this is different. This is realizing that in the face of your greatest enemy, all you can do is throw yourself on God's mercy and trust him to do what is right. To say, over to you, God. I can't, I can't solve this problem. I can't win this battle. The Israelites can't win, go into battle and win this. We've just got to cry out to God. Can you see the difference in those two attitudes? Last week, in the, in the, there was a the briefing from the chief medical officer and the chief scientific officer. And one of the lines, I don't know if you heard it, it stood out to me as I listened, was, was one of them said, in effect, don't be afraid, it will be okay in the end, because, why did, what did they say, why would it all be okay in the end? Science will ride to the rescue in the end, was the line they gave. Science will ride to the rescue. You know, we don't know when, we don't know how long, science will save us. Is that right? It's easy to think it's true, isn't it? And of course we long for, for, for science to, to help us in this situation. 
and, and God willing, that, that, that there may well be scientific advances that can be made that will help. But the Bible and Samuel would encourage us to realize, in the end, science cannot save us in the most meaningful sense. That's not to say forget about trying to find a vaccine or whatever it is, and it's great that scientists are working on that, but only God can save us. Only he can give us what we actually need most of all. Not, Not always in the way that we might expect or hope, but the way that we need. We can trust him. That is what Samuel had realized and what he was leading his people to understand. In the face of our greatest enemies, whatever they might look like, don't just turn to strategies and human-centered solutions and put our hope in what other human beings might be able to do. Get on your knees and cry to God. That is what Samuel is encouraging us to do. That is where we need to start. So Samuel is showing Effective leadership, that his call to repentance was prior to the deliverance. But then finally, in the, in the final verses, he points away from his own limited self to where God's people need to look ultimately for help. And we see in the final verses a helper for God's people. Helper for God's people. Samuel sets up a stone or a pile of stones and he, he calls it Ebenezer. The stone of help, the word means. Thus far has the Lord helped us, he says. Now, what's he saying by doing that? Well, he's saying Samuel in himself is limited. Samuel has not saved his people. God has saved his people. And this is the big lesson of the first seven chapters. And and really, actually, it's the big lesson of the whole book. The leader God's people need in the end is God himself. He is the helper of Israel. We heard that. That's why we had Psalm 121 read. It speaks of God as the helper of Israel. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He's described in that way a number of times in the Bible. Now, it might have seemed an odd thing to say, you know, that, that God had been their help. Of course, it was clear that God had helped them in their most recent battle with the Philistines. It was clear that God had helped them many times in the past, not least in the Exodus and other great events of their history. But but could they really say and mean that God had helped them also at the time when the 30,000 Israelites were killed by the Philistines just a few chapters earlier? Was that God helping them as well? What kind of help is that? Well, of course, it was a disciplining whole episode was designed to bring Israel to her knees, literally, to help her realize we have nowhere else to turn. So it's not that God was sort of active and involved in the bits where Israel won and then just sort of doing something else that day when they lost. No, he's been involved all the time. He's in control. He's sovereign, working for the good of his people, but he is both saving and times disciplining so that his people understand we can't be complacent we can't trust our own resources we can't even trust the mere symbol of God's presence with us we need to trust God himself and no one and nothing else and even those times when everything seemed to be out of control and crazy were designed to teach them that one thing 
In Romans 8, in the New Testament, Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That's not just the good times when things go the way we think they should, but in all things and all times. Do we believe that God is this kind of God? The, the, the helper of his people, not the hinderer of his people? Well, if, if we do, why then do we look anywhere else except to him? The, 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 the passage concludes by emphasizing Samuel's limitations. Twice we are reminded that Samuel's influence would last only during his own lifetime. Verse 13 and, and again verse 15. It's always like that with any human leader. They may have some positive influence for a time, but it's always limited in the end. But God is the helper of Israel. He's the helper of his people today. He acts to help in both deliverance and discipline because he knows what is best for his people. He has acted decisively in sending Jesus to die for his people so that we can know once and for all that whatever our circumstances have, however our circumstances feel to us as we experience them and go through them, he is for us and not against us. So for our part, as we seek effective leadership for ourselves or exercise it among others, today is a good day to return to the Lord, to rid ourselves of other gods of security and health and wealth that we're so tempted to follow, to commit ourselves to following him and then to put our hope in him so we can say thus far and always the Lord has helped us let's pray now thus far has the Lord helped us Father how foolish we are to go and look for security or comfort or help or deliverance anywhere else other than in you. And so we want to today to return to you afresh or even for the first time. To know that when we cry out to you for deliverance from sin, from the ways we've turned our backs on you, you promise you will answer. And even as we experience our circumstances today, and the ups and downs of living in a COVID world and beyond, may we be people who look to you in our anxiety and our fear, who cry out to you and know that in disciplining or deliverance, you are working to make your people more like Jesus. So we trust in you today. We pray that our eyes would remain fixed on your son as we go forward together.